solid gold, the ride was raw, bust the left turn was on Crenshaw. Shiny shine was the driver, no need your freak's hell. Had a beeper going off like a high school bell. Looked in the mirror, what did we see? Fucking blue lights, LAPD. Pigs searched our car, their day was made. Found an Uzi 44 and a hand grenade. Threw us in the county, high powered we took the time, no one's to blame. I know time flies so quickly. It's the evening of July 19th, 2023, and you are listening to the Combing the Stacks Music Podcast. As always, we are our home platform is Anchor, where you can, uh, I guess now it's Spotify for Podcasts, isn't it? I keep saying Anchor. It's Spotify for Podcasts, Combing the Stacks Music Podcast. You can search for us on YouTube using the same tag uh, in Spotify itself, uh, the app, not the Spotify for Podcasts. You can find various Combing the Stacks playlists of albums that we've covered and josh of course has the uh letterboxed combing the stacks music podcast essential materials list and speaking of josh it is a josh and john show today we we're just talking about this the last time we had a josh and john show we brought on our buddy sam to to kick off it's been a long time since just josh and i shot shot the shit just the two of us yeah um, really how do you feel about that josh it's it's like uh wearing an old sweater comfortable mm-hmm. i'm feeling it and uh changes are afoot for the show been a lot of planning in the background and excited to see uh what comes about in the future for the show yeah to give you a little bit of the secret sauce um what will happen is i think um we're going to be doing some shows josh and i maybe with some guests uh, for a while, as Matt takes a little bit of a break. Nothing bad, just a little recharge break. Um, and we're just going to be spending a little bit more time in the 80s and maybe even outside of the 80s with some ideas that we're kicking around. But we're also going to be bringing back a new format of the show, which we'll discuss in future weeks. Um, it is going to be a much more definitive regular episode, cold listen, hot take uh, episode, I would say, Josh, would be one of the things that will stand out. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, for those that don't know, uh, Josh is sort of the guy that handles the editing and the tech part of things. Uh, it does a great job with that. He integrates the music. So I just want to give him a shout out on that. Um, we've joked around in kind of like episode creation slash creative director. Would we call me sort of that role for the, the pod, Josh? Yeah, you're the general, okay. man. For sure. oh, I don't know if I want to be the ge- I, I I like the idea of like creative director. I like sure. that idea. Okay. Yeah. And then Matt sort of just brings his own 
essence to the <laughs> show. What, what, he's the wild card. <laughs> he, he's the wild card. Yeah, he he's everybody has a friend, right? He's like kind of the, the bassist of the band, right? Like integral yeah. to the sound of the band. But you know, maybe he's not writing the shows or doing the studio production. Um, but when he shows up, he just kills it, right? Yeah. So that's kind of Matt's role. Yeah, that, that's a good that's a good analogy for sure. He's the rhythm. So does that mean that you're like the lead guitarist, I'm the lead singer, and then Matt's sort of the rhythm section, the bassist yeah. and the drummer? Yeah. I think so. We'll go with that. Not and that he's going to listen to the show. And when he's not he's... here, we use a drum machine. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We use yeah, synths, a drum yeah. machine. But, and he's admitted that when he is not on the show, he sometimes does not listen. And I think last time he checked, he he listens to every show eventually but i think he said something like he's seven months behind like the run of our shows which i think is hilarious just that he just that randomly is. yeah goes in there so god only knows he's probably listening to something in like early season two right now so um shout out to all those that have been commenting on the uh the youtube uh pages as well we'd love to hear that feedback there's been some great comments recently some spirited discussion there's even been some requests for albums for us to to cover which i think has been interesting oh, so interesting. perhaps maybe we'll even delve into that world um albums for that, the 90s or the 80s so people the, the wonderful thing about the youtube page is that people will comment on like individual albums from all decades, right? Yeah. So sometimes they're 60s, 70s, 80s, which is funny because like the 60s and 70s show, I feel like in the 60s, we were still trying to figure out our way. So I cringe sometimes. I'm like, ooh, I wonder what it sounds like, that episode, mm -hmm. because, um, but there was a rawness and energy to that, um, that era Excitement. too. Mm -hmm. yep. So, um, and it doesn't seem like people are like, you're idiots, I hate this. It's, they, they come ready to engage so um but people are requesting various albums from the 60s and 70s and 80s so oh, josh right. and i have a nice little month here to play <laughs> around with so we could do all kinds of different ideas outside the box so mm -hmm. but anyway more to come on that down the road we've got a little bonus episode here uh we did not tease what we're going to cover this week we said a bonus episode was coming and uh, we're going to be pretty consistent for the rest of the summer outside of one week uh with that being said it's going to be josh and i and maybe some guests uh, what are we covering this week, Josh, so the listeners can listen, uh, listen yeah, along we, with us? Yeah, we decided on four albums to to touch on that we felt were, you know, needed to in the in the 80s. We are starting with uh, Paul Abdul's Forever Your Girl, uh, an important album in many respects, uh, followed by Ice-T's Ryan Pays, and then John Lennon and Yoko Ono's Double Fantasy and closing out with George Clinton's computer games. So all all albums from uh, different years in the 80s this time, but um, a different, uh, as usual, a wide sampling of genres. And while we won't do bios for this, because this is in the cold list and hot take vein, um, I will give a little bit of um, context mm -hmm. uh, in terms of different stuff as we go along. Um, I do want to say that um, that these albums were picked because we were looking for more inherently listenable stuff mm -hmm. um, in the sense, just easy, you know, to summer to, listening, summer listening a little bit. And uh, it won't always be the case for the albums we cover. Um, but this will be the third time we're covering, I guess it's not a solo album for John Lennon um, because he's got Yoko and yep. we'll talk about that. So, but in terms of John Lennon outside of the Beatles, this will be the third time we've covered him because we covered, um, both of his first two albums, uh, yep. we covered Imagine, 
um, earlier in the 70s. And my gosh, why am I blanking on the second Lennon album all of a sudden? No. Plastic Ono Band? Wait, yes, Wedding the Plastic album. Ono Band. <laughs> okay. Yes, yes, Plastic Ono Band. I apologize. So I guess there was some Yoko in that world. Um, yeah. We have not covered Paula Abdul. We have not covered Ice-T. Once again, we covered various elements of both Funkadelic and Parliament. Yep. In, we, we covered like Maggot Brain, um, we covered Mothership Connection, um, and different stuff, but we've never covered a George Clinton solo album. In fairness, that's because there really weren't George Clinton solo albums in the 60s and 70s where we covered. So we're, we're delving all over the decade. The, the Lennon Oko album is 80. The George Clinton album is 81. The Paula Abdul album is 88. And the Ice-T album, I believe, is 87. So mm. around both ends of the decade. So uh, another thing we wanted to throw in, though, was sort of a little bit of a preview of what's going to be coming in terms of the buzz clips slash singles part of the show. Um, we are going to cover three songs this week. Josh is going to take the lead on this. Yep. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about them, and then we're going to put them on the metal pedestal. We're going to give a gold silver and bronze order in terms of how we would rank them um so and there could be differences or there could be similarities so josh without further ado go ahead and take the lead yep so we're covering three singles this week this is like john said kind of uh in the vein of buzz clips and uh kind of a spin on that and with the ranking element so this week we're covering hollow notes i can't go for that uh, bangles walk like an Egyptian and white snake here I go again so th- three albums or songs that are very well recognized I would say yeah and two relatively iconic videos I'd say too in there yes. um, off the top but Impor- uh, yeah important important videos wh- especially important for for my development as a young male as well <laughs> sure. some of these videos yeah. <laughs> now uh, spoiler alert not the hall of notes video which i i did i did watch all three of these videos again Same. even though two of these i could tell you basically note from note from having seen them so often over the years uh where do you want to begin josh uh let's start with the hall of notes uh song um Always, always a big fan of the Hollow Notes video or songs. You know, we never talked about Hollow Notes actually, but they are. A well, band that's why that, I brought them up because yeah. all three of these we didn't talk about. Yeah, sure, sure. And Hollow Notes are, you know, they're a band that I always think of the singles for. I don't think I've ever listened to a Hollow Notes album, but they have so many singles that, uh, you know. They are one of the singles bands in my mind, actually. And it's funny because I put Hall and Oates in the same category as Huey Lewis in the news. But in fairness to Hall and Oates, Hall and Oates are a way more accomplished band yeah. <laughs> with way funkier grooves than Huey. No, no knock on Huey Lewis. And you, I was probably the minority opinion of not loving that album. Yeah. Uh, Josh and Matt love that album. Sports. Yep. Um, (laughs) as well but uh hall and oats are uh, would we say they're in like the blue-eyed soul i would sort of yeah that's what i would define them as um they're (laughs) always skirting that and um and i don't know they're adding their they they add their unique spin to that um or at least define it in some ways they're they're kind of singular in my mind well, selfishly, I, even though they're a du- even though they're a, du- a duo, they're singular in yeah. their own way. Um, I would like to describe the other two videos just because I have connections to them. Do oh, you sure. want to take the lead in describing this video for the the listeners? 
Yeah, this is a, a reflection of kind of the earlier part of music video era. And it's, as we talked about on some of our Internet Killed the Video Star segments, which you can go back to, this one is them just playing the music with uh, in a blackened studio stage and kind of got some fancy filters on the camera or, you know, like a shiny, uh, dreamy, gauzy camera effects on them gauzy Uh, i like that good description there yes and uh you know it's got a lot of close-ups of uh well i I really like the start of the video and it's how how it's uh hall playing the keyboard and Mm -hmm. like basically you know walking in the smoke yeah yeah and like a gold lame like jacket and all gold and his like hair almost matches his clothes uh and the, the 80s was the time it was and then and then uh it pans out and and you've got oats there as well like in all blue <laughs> with his unique hairstyle and gigantic mustache and playing the guitar and then we've got a third uh guest member i guess with the, with the saxophone <laughs> that's, that's isn't there the a song. woman sort of like in the shadows as well or am i misremembering that i i did not see a woman in the video okay so, uh, there were a couple times where I saw the profile of someone, but oh, I weird. I thought it was a woman, but maybe it was either Hall or Oates or the <laughs> yeah, saxophonist. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, they're they're dancing around, they're having a good time while while playing the videos, and they have some choreographed kind of uh, movements during the the chorus. I can't go for that. They cut to different camera angles of them, you know, uh, doing the cut motion with their hands and shaking their heads. How and... <laughs> goofy is the saxophone player, by the way? He is <laughs> full on camp yeah. on this one. Yeah, He's really having a good time. Does he have sunglasses on? I think he, he does. He does. He has yeah. sunglasses. He's very, very washed out, I'd yep. say. The filter. Yeah. He's also he... incredibly tall, com- seems, yes. compared to both of them. They're probably all the same age, but he has that look where he looks like eight years older than. I, yeah. I don't really have an idea of how old Oates is, because Oates right. could be anywhere from like late twenties to like forty-five year old. Like I know he's not, but because of right. that mustache, it just throws you. Uh, yeah, he's also of... a lot more casual. The other two are in <laughs> yes. jackets, where Oates is sort of just in like an open shirt with a like a uh, Hanes BFT underneath mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, they they're just moving to the beat and. I mean, yeah, it's a it's a simple video, but it's uh, I found it very entertaining, for sure. And the song uh, is a banger. I, I I love the song. I've mm. heard it many times. It never gets old. Is it my favorite Hollow Notes song? No, I don't think so. But but it's definitely up there. What is your favorite Hollow Notes song to put you on the spot? Is there one that jumps out for you? Maybe Man Eater. Maybe mm-hmm. uh, uh, I don't know. That, that's the first one that comes to mind. You're out of touch. Yeah, that's a good one too. <laughs> yeah. I uh, I am not a huge Hall of Notes. I, I don't dislike Hall of Notes, but yeah. this like smooth sound of pop, I think we established in the Huey Lewis episode and some others, it, it doesn't have the, um, it's not the pop sound for me as much, the jazzy yacht rock adjacent type sound of hollow mm-hmm. notes this is very much in right now i thought one of the hilarious things is i like to read the comments on these things and oh, people yeah. were talking about hall and oats as like the best like unironically as the best band and like just 
the best act of the 80s and it's kind of for me it's always like hold on a second like let, let's <laughs> pump the brake but these people truly believe it you know and i yeah. it, it's we're in a moment right now where this type of music really translates to the modern generation i'd say yeah. like there's a lot of people that are influenced by this type of sound um i, I always attribute it back to like we're in a post cool society and so hall and oats can you don't have to be cool anymore or like them un like ironically or whatever. Like you could just like, like them. Um, and that's good, but it's also like, I never can imagine someone saying like Hall and Oates is like the most important band in my life. It's like, they kind of just existed to me. Right. So, um, and, and they're in the tradition for me of blue eyed soul. Like they, uh, Daryl Hall's got a, a very nice, soulful voice. They always, yep. the best part of Hall and Oates always is they have good bass lines, which goes a long way for me. Um, I find their lyrics and the, the, the construction of the songs a little bit lightweight at times, but mm -hmm. you can't deny that, uh, that element of the sax, which is both here and like man eater and all the other songs mm -hmm. adds a little bit of a different feel to the tracks too. Um, and we're going to see different versions of like 80s pop in the other songs we cover. But yep. uh, and that's why the ranking is going to be so interesting. But yeah, I I laughed and enjoyed the video because it's been a while since I saw it. It's of the 80s. Um, it's a harmless song. Does it rise into me ever calling it a bang? I, Hall and Oates don't have bangers for me. <laughs> There's just not Sorry. enough edge. There's not enough edge for a bang. I mean, maybe a bop. Right would be yeah. a better version, I'd say. Like to me, a banger has to have more teeth than this song does. But yeah, uh, that would I guess it would be a banger in the Hollow Notes catalog. That would be <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, asterisk. Uh, asterisk of, of ba bangs as much as Hollow Notes, but although I get the feeling Oats can bang. You know what yeah. I mean? If you get what I'm sure. saying. Yeah. Yeah. So mm -hmm. <laughs> so okay. Well, that's a little bit of that one. We'll we'll of course go back in terms of the ranking part of it, but. Mm -hmm. Um, what do you want to do next? Uh, next up is uh, let's talk about the Bengals. Walk like an Egyptian, um, well, another <laughs> seminal band for you, I'm sure. Well, I I always attribute Susanna Hoffs as yeah. the first person that young me looked at before you know you hit puberty and stuff. But like you're like like I this is an attractive woman. Like yeah. there was something sort of mesmerizing to me about Susanna Hoffs besides the fact that she's She's both like conventionally attractive, but she's like also like rock chick attractive, but not in a way that was scary for like a right. seven year old or eight year old. There's just there's like a, a f and I don't mean to focus on because we're talking video here. Right? right. It's the the bangles, you know, kind of continue what the Go-Go's did, like a, a mm -hmm. girl group that um, plays their instruments and write some of their songs. I don't think they wrote as many as the Go-Go's did. I know, um, I, I want to say Walk Like an Egyptian was written by Prince. If I, Or no, it's Manic Monday that was written by Prince. I oh, apologize. Okay. Yeah, the, the Bangles' other big hit. Um, and then they had Eternal Flame right later that mm -hmm. was the true ballad along the way. But I love this video because it's just such a goofy video. It's like a performance video, but then they throw in the Walk Like an Egyptian dance. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like... They have the over elaborate like graphics of like the Prince Charles doing. They're just like <laughs> using '80s effects to yes. show various stationary or in movement, but 
outside of the context of the video, people walking like an Egyptian there. If they don't hit you over the head enough, there's people dressed like pharaohs doing it. But And the band themselves is doing what would theoretically be the dance. But yeah. I think we have to talk about the iconic image of this, which is that shot where it gets brought down, the, you know, the breathy sort of, you know, walk like an Egyptian, where Susanna Hoff scans the stage mm-hmm. back and forth with her eyes, which is the shot I always think of. Yeah. In this. Um, and I laugh every time with the Muammar Gaddafi walk like an Egyptian. <laughs> Makes every single yeah. time. I never will not laugh when I see that specific animation. I don't know why. It's just so ridiculous. And like if you're you have to know who he is, but also be of the time. It just is in its own way. Perfect. So as a as a pop song, I really like this song. I like Susanna Hoff's voice. I like sort of this genre of rock pop kind of it's it's not you know the power pop right this is clearly pop with rock elements like guitars in it um but i i'm a fan of this and i will be honest with you josh to some degree i like female lead singers in the style of rock pop i don't know what it is it just feels like it belongs more to me um i don't know how to describe it but i just have found there's a lot of bands that that sound like this, that I like, and a lot of them happen to be female fronted. Mm. Um, what do you, What are your thoughts on this one? Well, this is a huge, a huge song and a huge video. I mean, this is probably one of the defining, recognizable '80s uh, pop songs of the era, and definitely one I remember from early on as a kid. It's a little, in some ways, it's a little gimmicky, and, and the video is too, because it cuts for sure, it, like you said, it cuts to. Uh, people on the street of New York City, you know, walking like an Egyptian, different random people, and yeah, like uh, EMTs uh, and construction yeah. workers. Yeah, yeah, people on the street, tourists, people at their jobs, business people, etc. And uh, that I guess that adds to some of the charm of the video. It cuts back to. Do you think that was a real concert or that was just staged for? for the music video. It, it looks like it was staged yeah. for the music video. It was supposed to give you a feel of seeing them live, I think. Yeah, because the, the sound of the crowd, too, just sounds like it's piped in or like ADR. Also, if you're if you're playing like a full concert, you're not going to look as good as all of them do. You yeah, know, their makeup true. and their hair is perfect. There's yeah. not much sweat. Like, you feel like when they're at song number 12, right, good they're going to be a little bit more tussled. Yes, and this would be one of their their biggest songs too. So it would come later in the set, I would imagine. Anyway, it highlights the Bengals and who they are. All, and you know, uh, unfortunately, I don't know the members of the other the other uh, four people in the band uh, other than Susanna Hoffs. I know the guitarist's first name is Kathy. I'm gonna make sure that they get their due right here yeah. as you continue your take because I hate the idea of not yeah giving them that. Yeah, and what I like about at least with this video and and uh um, oh, here we go it's uh so vicky peterson uh debbie peterson michael Steele, and annette uh zilinoskis are the members of the band oh okay yep. and it looks and, like they were there in this album as well so i'm just gonna look just to make sure great and what i like about them too in this video is that they all kind of get a, a verse uh, they all take the lead and sing at Susanna Hoffs is actually last in them. And they all have pretty good voices, I think, and um, have that kind of like eighties rock, eighties uh, rock pop look to them and feel to them and energy. And it's just a fun, fun video, fun song. And so, yeah, I like it. I think just, 
just for some cleaning, Zilinoskis left the band in 1983 and was replaced by Michael Steele. So that was the list of full group members, but it looks like it's Hoffs, the Petersons, and Steele for this one. Uh, Steele was in The Runaways, oh. who ah, we covered okay. in the 70s. Yep. Nice. Mm-hmm. So pedigree there. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, good stuff. Uh, good, good video. Definitely watch it. And, uh, I definitely, yeah, this one, uh, Manic Monday, Eternal Flame, and then the cover of Hazy Shade of mm-hmm. uh, Winter are the four songs I think of with the Bengals. So. Yeah, I really like that Hazy Shade of Winter uh, guitar part too. And they add some edge to it from the original. It sure did. So, right. okay, so we're eventually going to rank them. But now, here I go again. Speaking <laughs> of videos that help me figure out Yep. What, what th- this was the other side, right? This this woman did seem dangerous, you know, to me. Old Tawny Katane. Yep. Um, so iconic that I can pull her name off without even having to look it up. That's uh, how iconic she is. And I be- I believe I would describe this video as Tawny Katane is having sex with the viewer through <laughs> a car. Would you say that's kind of the vibe of the video? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. she's she is. She's uh, seducing you, but the car is the ve- literally correct. the vehicle for yep. said seduction. Mm-hmm. And I think on the, you know, it cuts in between White Snake performing the song and David Coverdale singing lead, and and that part is typical, I think, of a lot of the the videos of the time. Again, it's like them on a giant stage and really only David Coverdale gets the close up whereas <laughs> yeah. the other members Well, I think you're supposed to find him sexy for like one group, right? And then yeah. her sexy, but like time I think has kept her much sexier than him in terms yeah, of that's style. True. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think they were dating at the time, right? I feel like that's right, yeah. I, yeah. And that was kind of like a metal band thing, right? Like get right. the chick in the video and then date said chick in the video yeah mm-hmm. and she uh well the band is uh you know the song itself here i go again is a a big kind of rock ballad that builds to the rocking chorus and you know it starts out slow and and uh and then builds slowly to this you know thunderous uh, sing-along chorus and you cut to Tony Katane on a car in all white, often, uh, you know, moving virginal white, (laughs) you know, kind of doing like moving her legs in seductive ways and (laughs) cartwheels splits. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Arching her back. Yes. (laughs) Kind of, I don't know, like going down onto the hood, like sliding down off on the hood. It's basically, they said, let's take all of the various positions slash ways that you could engage in sexual activity and let's have you like position yourself as if you were doing it, but like on a car. Yeah. Would you say? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then eventually David Coverdale's in the car driving and she is riding out the side of the window with mm-hmm. their hair and like yes. messing with him while he's singing. I should also <laughs> mention that David Coverdale is also trying to seduce you with his intense eyes <laughs> as true. he's singing as well. So um, and God hair. bless him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, they both have matching big hair. And uh, although his is more curly than hers, I think. And yeah. I think my, my life goals is to find a woman who... <laughs> 
fully splits over the course of two cars, like Tawdy Katayn is in yeah, this that, one. Yeah, that was yep. impressive, actually. Impressive, that, wasn't it? That did yeah. some flexibility. That, I that and the fact that she could do a full kick up outside the car window is the other thing that always amazes me. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so it's a. If you haven't heard this song, I really recommend singing it. Or not singing it. I recommend you sing along to it, but I also recommend you listen to it. It's a great song to sing, too. But yeah. it would it would just be a good song without the video. With the video, it becomes yeah, it's all an iconic video. 80s song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if we've sold the video hard enough, but definitely check that out. And... The so- let's talk about the song a little bit, too. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a yearning heavy metal ballad, would you say? With like It's that traditional template where the singer gets more and more urgent and then in the chorus just sort of like belts leading almost to like that feral sort of scream leading into the guitar solo that was part of so many uh ballads you know that like here i go you know i I, sorry i have to warm up my voice to hit a note that high but then the guitar solos i'd say are fairly traditional would you say in the way of 80s hair metal and it starts um, out with this kind of like keyboard part too that that is mm-hmm. identifiable and mm-hmm. um, for me like as soon as you hear that you know the song and yes. i think it's like multiple keyboards at least according to the video cuz they're like mm-hmm. all three of the three people are up there <laughs> triple and, keyboard attack <laughs> yeah really and uh i i think white snake i mean they were british or english as well um they, i don't know they kind of strike me as following in the vein of of Queen and some of these other um, earlier bands that uh, it's they're hair metal, but they're also kind of like they're not dangerous, at least in this video or, or track in the way that you know Guns N' Roses were and some of the others. Tried well, to even Guns N' Roses portray. is only half dangerous, you know. I yeah, like there's yeah, like they're rock and roll dangerous, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah at the end of the day, they're more they're just. Um, an image more than kind of mm-hmm. the vibe, I would say. Yeah, and I'd say I always find hair metal hilarious because so much of it is sold on like these men who are supposedly sexy to women, and they were in that era, but mm-hmm. you just don't see anyone who projects sexually this way anymore. Like you, you could not be this human in the modern context. So that always makes me laugh when someone was like a a proto sex symbol, you know, in that era, like it, uh, not proto, uh, was like a sex symbol in the era in a way that you wouldn't be a sex symbol now because just no one could pull off like being that anymore, yeah. right? Like a hairband sexy, but you could still pull off being Tawny Katane, right? There'd Definitely. be, there half the people would hate you and say you were being exploited, right? But you still would be viewed as sexy by a not insignificant, you know, it's basically the modern Tawny Katane is the Instagram model, mm-hmm. right? Uh, yeah, the other thing you realize is there aren't power ballads like this anymore. No, definitely not. Like this is a, another dead genre of music, like well, the power yes. ballad. Yeah. Well, as you as you've said before too, kind of the, the guitar-driven rock sound is on the wane mm-hmm. as, at this time as well. On life support, if you yeah. even have it, yeah. <laughs> so. And and this is a subgenre of guitar-driven rock, like the power ballad. So. Um, so yeah, it's just it's more so than the other two songs in which you can see certainly the the uh, 
the Hall and Oates song, right? You could see elements in modern music there. And even a little bit of what's going on with Walk Like an Egyptian, there will always be gimmick songs and sort of like catchy, you know, build to the bridge, you know, sing the chorus type songs. This was the only one that seemed like a, a like a, of another time, yeah. <laughs> you know? Can you For make sure. a video? I was going to say, can you make a video like this? And there'd be the people that would like be clamoring that you can't and stuff. But I absolutely think you can still make a video like this. I think the only difference is that there will be people that will make it be their life to push back on this. But there will be just as many people who love it, you know, in some ways, too. It's it's um, it's pretty tame, I think, in mm-hmm. terms of I think so compared yeah. to today's. I mean, you should should go watch one of Janelle Monet's new videos and yes. you'll, you'll see the difference. <laughs> well, even like Miley Cyrus Wrecking Ball, which yeah. kind of was another performance piece, right? With someone mm-hmm. sexual. I'm just using that as an example where it's like, I, I just think it's funny what was considered edgy sexually, right? right? Then to now that the limits are, it's changed. you know, when you look at Nicki Minaj or Megan The Stallion or Janelle Monet or, um, very, you know that like i said the Even like beyonce in some ways mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah it's like this just it's funny at the time it was considered this like scandalous video and now you look at it it's like oh it's a pretty girl posing reasonably covered up in the modern yes. context right For sure. like you know what i mean and she's sexual but in a way that doesn't seem you know what i mean like uh, as overt i guess as yeah. like a tight shot on the ass maybe Agreed. Um, so mm-hmm so yeah so all right so let's go to the medal stand josh what is your bronze medal choice this week so i'm basing i'm trying to base my choice solely on the song just the song song. oh yeah 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 um i i would say a hollow notes i can't go for that as my bronze winner this week I agree with you. The Hall yeah. of Notes song is my bron. Now, I did not dislike any of these songs, so it was not Same. as easy as you'd think. And I did not love any of the songs hmm. at a high level either. Like, oh, that's a clear gold. So it was a yeah. little bit tougher. But yeah, I would agree with you on that. We have the same bronze medalist. What is your silver medalist? Uh, I'm going with White Snake. Here I go again. It's funny. I picked White Snake as well, Josh. So here I thought it was going to be a discussion point. <laughs> yeah. And, and that means we both put the bangles on the podium. I, I expected Hall and Oates to be your winner, Josh, because I know you're a fan of the smooth music. Yeah, I think it it's true. I, I like them. But in comparison to the other two videos and, mm-hmm. and songs that I would hear and enjoy hearing and sing mm-hmm. along to, these, these other two just rise higher than Hall and Oates this week. And I don't even think we need to guess. If Matt was here, White Snake would be his gold medal. I, I, I feel extremely comfortable saying that would be his gold medal. What would be his silver? I don't know. I could see an argument for either because he likes both genres of music. Yeah. Uh, and similar bands to the Bangles and Huey Lewis and the News, he liked both. So we'll let him weigh in on that. But just know that Matt would put White Snake at the gold, his hair metal affection. Uh, you know, has no boundaries. I really think he should dress up like David Coverdale and sing the song. I think he should dress up like David Coverdale (laughs) and he should find Tawny Katane and send her my way because I'll, uh, yeah. Could you imagine Matt in a video? Like, this is uh, is an exercise for just us because no one has any idea what Matt looks like outside (laughs) the, you know, it's personal. But I want the, the image you have in your mind of Matt, I want you to know that it's even funnier, the idea of, 
a woman who looks like Tawny Katine and dressed, not because Matt's not a slick guy in his own way, but just his awkwardness in that situation would be phenomenal. Although in fairness, I don't know if any of us could pull it off fully. Oh, absolutely um, not. I would not be. Yeah. <laughs> I would try my damnedest to have that intensity that David Coverdale bring. So give David Coverdale credit. He um yeah. he was able to pull off. Yeah, yeah, the BDE needed for that video. It's true. He was mm-hmm. the one of the originals, at least the, the originals. 80s. <laughs> <laughs> okay, our first album, Paula Abdul, Forever Your Girl. We said we were going to use these episodes to kind of cover some artists that we're going to slip through without us touching on them, and at the the end of the 80s and the very early 90s uh, off this album, there were few artists charting as aggressively on the Billboard charts as Paula Abdul was. Yeah. Um, how So how familiar are you, uh, Josh, with Paula Abdul, this album, but also like as a concept? Because I, full disclosure, I always talk about the five cassette tapes I was gifted mm-hmm. in Christmas mm-hmm. of... Uh, 1988, and uh, this was one of the five that I got, Forever Your Girl by Paula Abdul. So, excuse me, it was 89, Christmas of 89. So, how familiar are you with her backstory, which I'll go into in a little bit? Oh, I knew knew, um, kind of just the big things about her. I, I was familiar with some of the songs off this album, and I knew that she was a Laker girl and choreographer, um, and then kind of, well, now she's on like what America's got talent or something. She's a judge on well, something. She was, show. she was a, an original American idol judge, oh, right? right? I right. think was her. Yeah. Her yeah. deal. And I don't think she's been, I don't know if she's on another one of the shows, but that was how she had kind of a comeback into the, the lexicon, right? <laughs> was, yeah. was that her right. Randy Jackson, right? Was yep. one. And then Simon, Simon Cow, right? It was those three, I think. I think so. I, I was never an American Idol uh, person. I wasn't either, but it was so big right. in that era that <laughs> you true. couldn't help but notice. Yeah, and Ryan Seacrest hosting. Yes, uh, but yeah, I think I think we both agreed. I mean, you can give some more facts about maybe this album, but I think we both agreed that we wanted to talk about this album because it was so huge. It sold so many, so many song uh, albums, and and a lot of the songs are so recognizable that uh that um we felt like we had to talk about it yeah we're trying to become much better at covering and like i said um we're gonna we're gonna in another way even more so in the 90s try to do this at an even greater extent Mm -hmm. uh pop and popular music that was going on and you know sometimes it can be easy when you're doing these countdowns and stuff they sort of neglect the popular because they're going for the lost and forgotten or the critically acclaimed. And don't get me wrong. I want to listen to all of that. Right. But yeah. um, there's something to be said for knowing what was popular in its era. So and and having an album that was the first time had four number one singles on a mm-hmm. debut album, which is massive. Yeah, and I remember five of these songs vividly. So I believe there were five singles on this album because I can remember hearing all of them on the radio outside of just my own personal radio. But a little bit about Paula Abdul. Paula Abdul was born June 19th, 1962. So she turned 61 exactly one month ago um, because today is July 19th as we tape. So June 19th. 
She was born in San Fernando, California. One thing I wasn't sure of before I did this was I a little bit of Paula Abdul's heritage. Um, she is Syrian Jewish on her father's side. Uh, that's where her father was born in Aleppo, um, actually. He was raised in Brazil and then emigrated to the United States. Um, her mother was originally from Canada. Um, so that is sort of the the origin story there. Uh, Paula Abdul was musical from an early age, as you would expect from someone whose mom was a concert pianist. Mm -hmm. um, she's an older sister. She was a dancer, and she took early dance lessons in all the things that girls do, right? Ballet, jazz, and tap. Um, and kind of was involved in all the normal things. Went to public high school. Shout out public high school. Like as a public high school product myself, mm -hmm. um, I always will say that we're the best people in the world, <laughs> public school people. Um, and so many of these people went to like prep schools too, right? But then sort of slum it, right? So I like yeah. to sometimes say went to a public high school. And there's a couple public high school grads this week we're covering. But um, yeah. so she received a scholarship to a dance camp in Palm Springs in 1978 ends up in a video, and then uh, studied broadcasting at Cal State Northridge. Um, and during her freshman year at Cal State Northridge, she tried out for the Laker girls, a pool of 700 candidates, and made the Laker girls. And within a year, she was the head choreographer of the team and actually stayed there from 1980 to 1986, which seems like a long time to be with a cheerleading troupe. But she was the head choreographer, too. And they so. were... A big deal in terms of like selling the oh, Lakers, especially and, in the eighties, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, because eighties when because you know Magic goes to the Lakers in eighties. As a Michigan yep. State guy, I know that he won the national title in seventy nine at Michigan State, and then ends up in eighty. Yeah, so to be there from eighty to eighty six, right? Oh my gosh, you got Magic Kareem had just come there. You got the Showtime Lakers. Yep. So, for those that might be international listeners, of which we have a lot, I think you probably are familiar with the concept of the L.A. Lakers and. You know, in modern sure. times, Kobe and Shaq, but sport, but probably there's multiple eras of the Lakers that were big. You know, the Elgin Baylor, Jerry West, Wilt Chamberlain one. There's the you know the Shaq and Kobe one, but I don't know if there was ever a bigger Lakers than the '80s Lakers. Um, they're de I feel like in my mind, they're definitely the most famous. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Um, and you know, you've got Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, James Worthy, and many many others, including celebrities at courtside and why that's important is because in 1982 paula abdul i guess they say is discovered i mean she already had a career but the jacksons find her they yeah. had gone to a la lakers game and they found her and you know this is when the jacksons had just reunited right for the tour that leads to you know when michael does the moonwalk and all that good stuff mm -hmm. uh and they had a single called torture i can't say i'm familiar with torture but she does the choreo for that uh, album, she does share some funny stories that, um, you know, and I, I relied on a couple different sources, Wikipedia, all music and a couple interviews. But there's a couple different times where they mentioned that it was a very difficult job to, you know, tell the Jacksons how to dance. Right. Like it's, kind of right. Like, it's a pretty difficult job. Right. But they were pretty happy with her enough. So to sort of uh, direct her to Janet. Right. And and uh, Paula does the choreo for 
all the big songs on Control, Nasty, Control, and What Have You Done For Me Lately. Mm. And uh, she becomes the choreographer for the Jackson's Victory Reunion Tour. And she also, you'll like this, Josh, she choreographed the dance on the keyboard in Big. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yep. That's so that was fact. her. But she, um, you know, she's making pretty good money and she decides to use her savings and she makes a singing demo. Uh, it ends up in the hands of A&M Records um, through a, a gentleman who worked in marketing. Um, she was kind of an untrained singer, right? As you can kind of tell on this album a little bit. Uh, and But it was a dream of hers. And she goes in. She uh, One of the things that comes up a lot is that a lot of record industry people kind of immediately got what Paula Abdul could be because they viewed her as much as a performer, as a singer, right? You know, as opposed to like a Whitney Houston or a a Mariah Carey or somebody, right? Christina Aguilera, who primarily is a singer, right? Mary J. Blige. They viewed her as like the, the image, right? And the dancing, everything was, and the, the personality, right? The big personality, the, you know, the, sexuality but like in kind of like a girl next door type way was going to be all the things right so she's kind of the complete package in some respects well as a pop star right and so that's why the videos become so important and the videos stand out to me in this josh are like i you know you've got opposites attract where she's dancing with dj scat (laughs) cat right (laughs) you've got cold heart which i think is one of the 10 best videos ever made (laughs) it's just a fantastically choreographed video that's just Iconic is used too often, but that one's pretty iconic. Yeah, oh, it's yeah. A tribute to Bob Fosse, and you should mm-hmm. definitely watch it for sure. She's great in it. And then Straight Up has the the tap dance scene at the beginning with her, and it's the black and white video. David, and, yeah, um, David Fincher directed that one. Yeah, I want to say I know she dated Arsenio Hall, and I want to say he's in that video if I remember correctly too. Um, mm. But yeah, those three videos I were on heavy rotate. As was Forever Your Girl. It's not on this album, but I can definitely remember Rush Rush off the second album with Keanu Reeves and the, the tale of like the the drag race, right? That ends uh. in tragedy is another uh, big video as as well. Um, it's just The Way That You Love Me was another single that I can remember on the radio. So yeah, that's a little bit of um, the go through. This one was nominated for Grammys for Best Music Video for Opposites Tracked and Best Female Pop Vocal Performance for Straight Up. But she did lose on that one to Bonnie Raitt and Nick of Time uh, for that one. About. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. So that's a little bit of an overview. But uh, Josh, what would you think of this one? Uh, I really enjoyed this album. I don't see how you couldn't enjoy it in some respects. It sets the template for, I feel like, so many uh, pop stars um, to come in the 90s and 2000s. And, and really her her kind of whole image and the fact that she dances and and really this uh, and the sound too of this album um, is is defining uh, for so many for so many people the it has a very clean sound I guess we should say too that this album has multiple uh, producers on it and uh, but L.A. Reid and Babyface um, are producers on that and they're well-known names uh you know what this sounded like a ton? It sounded like that late 90s boy band production pop. Mm-hmm. Like when you listen to the tracks in isolation, yep. it could be a Backstreet Boys or NSYNC 
type sound is the first thing that's that stood out to me in a way that i'd never noticed before yeah that's that's a good point because some of the it's got this uh synthetic sound to it and and it's very clean but it also has uh the kind of like almost like new jack swing type of sound which we've talked about with like janet jackson a little bit and it's also got a lot of things that sound like dun 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 dun, you know, mm-hmm. that type of sound that I always identify a little bit with those boy bands in the late 90s. But I'm like, that and the synths combo yeah. are yeah. all over. So those that might know the Janet Jackson or New Jack Swing early 90s, there's elements of that. But this also sounds different than that. Like you can see the DNA of like L.A. Reed. And you can see the DNA of what Babyface would do later, but I don't know if it's the mix of them or just other stuff that was going on. I think it carries a lot more sound to like that late '90s pop yeah, sound. Oh yeah, it's not even. I just was listening to Britney Spears last week, and and yes, that is there's another also one rem- yep. reminiscent of that. You know, right from the jump with her, with her first video, there is a very similar sound to to this, um, the template. I think in some ways drum machine too, I think comes into play a lot. The, I thought, you know, probably the, I, would you say straight up's the most famous song on this album? Probably most. Uh, yes. That's the, it was the biggest single. Yeah. I think um, the other, uh, don't get me wrong. The other four singles to lesser degrees were huge. Yep. Um, especially like cold heart and opposites attract. Yep. But, uh, but yeah, straight up's kind of the one, if you were going to pick one was the big one. Yeah. I would say, and that's the one I think I knew the most and recognized and think of when I think of Paul Abdul. And I, I thought it was funny because there is like a rising synth thing in there that's similar to Buffalo Stance when we talked about that song. In uh, Yes, the, good call. And, yeah, it was it was like eerily familiar, so I'm glad I caught it. But yeah, that this is, you know, the, the lyrical content is not... Um, doesn't deviate from kind of a couple different themes throughout this entire album basically love variants on love and attraction and and um lost love and pretty much all the songs are about that in one shape or form but oh yeah it was like you have to wonder who paula abdul's dating because a lot there's a lot of themes of like you may have a lot of money but you can't win my love comes up often and yes. a lot of others is like, you have to decide if you're going to continue to be a dog or if you're going to commit to me is the mm-hmm. other theme that comes up over it. So I'm like, who was Paul Ab- poor Ab- Paul Abdul was not dating quality men at this point. They did um, not, uh, whoever was writing her songs, if she did not contribute. Did, his... did you know that we talked about the five singles, right? Uh, yep. Straight up, Forever Your Girl, Cold Hearted, Opposites Tracked, and The Way That You Love Me. Do you know that none of them, there were six singles released, none of them were the first single released? Knocked Out was the first one, which kind of makes sense because it sounds like a song that like Pebbles or, you know, those type of yeah. that late 80s, it does have a feel of that. So at first I was like, are you kidding me? But then I'm like, I kind of get it because it's the one that most sounds like 1988. And that was released on May 4th, 1988. Jeez. And You yeah. want to hear something else crazy? I'm sorry to keep you... That was released May 4th, 1988. The last single, Opposites Tracked, was released November 17th, 1989. Oh, yeah. So it was a year and a half that they were pumping out singles. Yeah, Yeah, that's crazy. That is More than a year, a year and a half. Yeah, that's uh, impressive. That would never happen today. And and yeah, Knocked Out is 
not the first song that or not what i would think of as the first single but it's still a pretty good song i like the uh the sweet guitar at the end and there's that line that she has about the love tko it's like she's singing with herself almost or there's like a group chant or something um towards the end i thought that was pretty clever but my favorite songs on here are straight up and cold hearted and this album is just a breeze to listen to also like you can sing along to it um there's also uh they it's just a well-constructed album with uh catchy beats and um great music and she just uh brings it on this album yeah this uh, this was a very enjoyable listen i will say though that this is a six song album there's the yeah. six singles are yeah. excellent. The four non-singles are not as excellent. Um, and the album, unlike many albums we've seen, the the singles aren't front-loaded. Right. They're all over. Like Cold Heart, it comes in at nine of ten. Straight Up's all the way down at seven. And Forever Your Girls at six. And then there's some stuff in between. Like Opposites Attract is at three. And The Way That You Love Me is at one. So all these different singles are interspersed through the album. Mm-hmm. So... There was a little bit of like, just when you're getting in the groove, you're like, banger, banger. Then it's like, that's not as good, right? But then yeah. it comes right back on with, okay, now it's back, right? Now yep. here's Forever Your Girl Straight Up. It's like, uh, next to you, I don't know about that one. But then like Cold Heart, it comes back in. You're like, god damn, that's a good song. Yep. So, and make no mistake, my favorite on this album has always been Cold Hearted. I just, mm. I love the the snake sounding synth on that album is the best way i could describe it it sounds like a snake like hissing kind of um and you know and it's cold-hearted snake right so it makes sense even thematically straight up's a great pop song as well straight up's one of those songs that like i think paula abdul has fallen out of people really knowing who she is in the modern era but then you play that song for somebody who's younger and they're like god damn this is a good song so it it's just one of those songs that's sort of undeniable. Yeah. Um, I've always said that it's hard for me to like just listen to a Paula Abdul album, even though I did plenty at age nine, right? Um, yeah. Because uh, that's what you did. But like I always fashion Paula Abdul with the videos because to me, she's the the star part of pop star, right? She's she's got a little bit of a thin voice in that sense. She's kind of like you know, Diana Ross or Janet Jackson or any of a number of people, right? That kind of, they're not powerhouses vocally. Like, they're not bad singers, but they're not anybody you'd put on the, you know, top singers list, right? The voice can get a little thin at times, but it isn't about the voice. It's about the songs and it's about the platform, right, for her to be a star. Mm -hmm. There's even people who knock Madonna, right, for the same idea. Um, you know, like that's a little bit thinner voice, but she's a star, right? And yep. I like my pop stars to be eccentric slash big people. You know what I mean? Like I don't like boring pop stars. It's like I don't like boring movie stars. Like correct. I'm saying stars. There's actors and then there's movie stars. Oh and yeah, definitely. I, and like I always am amazed when people don't want their pop stars or movie stars to be slightly different than the rest of us. They want to like relate to them. I'm like, I don't want to. I want them to be a bigger, bolder, you know, more chaotic version, you know, of mm-hmm. stuff. And, you know, Paula Abdul has had her ups and downs, right? A couple marriages. I think there was some substance abuse in there, but always very likable, right? And just sort of, just every time you see her, 
she's just she's a star you know what i mean she just has that that it factor um that i would describe um but you know she's also she's had like plane crashes and stuff it's just it's you know it's the rock star life right and it's a mm-hmm. pop star life i should say in its own way so um and i've always had a soft spot for her i think because i got this album at the perfect time when you're you're just getting into listening to your own music and I felt like she kind of belonged, she and the pop stars of that era kind of belonged to me because this was her debut, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, um, so yeah, Breeze to listen to. If you're looking for a pop album that has a lot of great songs, um, this is a good one to do. Like I said, the only criticism I'd have is that the, the weaker songs are weak. Yeah. <laughs> you, This could be a greatest hits so you slap those six singles together with like Rush Rush and Promise of a New Day, right? Was the other one from the second one that I remember. And, you know, the, the greatest hits, right, of those 10 might be a little bit better than uh, the totality of the album. Yeah. But think, still an easy, easy thumbs up for me. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like riding a wave. The strength of the singles will carry you through the weaker, <laughs> the weaker ones in this album. And it, at, in that 44 minutes, it's... Uh, not too much of an ask to listen to the whole thing absolutely so thumbs up for both yeah. it sounds like yeah yeah it's not gonna reinvent the wheel of pop or music in general if you're a person that needs your music to be a larger message or lyrically deeper this is not you but i i don't need my pop always to be pop exists to me as a different different lane that i like going to yeah. i wouldn't want to listen to it all the time but in the lane where i want to go to pop this sounds like what i like yeah it's not creatively uh, ambitious in the way that even like a prayer was with madonna when we, which we talked about a little a um, mm-hmm. few weeks ago but this is right example of of pop well done and and uh refined you know and not generic things. Right. The the bad, the lesser songs are generic, and that's what stands out. That the five five of the singles are not generic; they're their own unique pieces, and it really is a like how to, like how to make a great pop song, and then uh, these are duds, right? Yep. Like this album gives you both. So, yep, got it. Album number two in a different genre. Here we're gonna go to some rap. We're gonna go to Ice T, who I could not believe, Josh. Did you, when this album dropped, did you know Ice-T was almost 30 years old when this album wow. dropped? No, I did yep. not. He was born in 1958, and this one came out in 1987. So yeah, Ice-T was pushing 30 years old when this came out, um, which I I had no concept of Ice-T in the present day being 65 years old. It's, did you? No. And okay. In some ways, I... I imagine there's a whole generation of uh, listeners that only know Ice T from S- Special Victims Unit. Uh, well, like Ice T, Ice T's like had like three lives. I feel like yeah. right. There's like the life where he was like a criminal yeah. <laughs> by his own admission, like like legitimate criminal, like robbing banks, pimping, you know, all the things. Mm-hmm. Like and, and then there's like the rap life of Ice T. And then there's like Ice T actor and celebrity on SVU and New Jack City and yep. that show with his wife who I think her name is Coco, Coco right? Yeah. And I just think of her as just being like walking curves, right? Like it's <laughs> yeah. kind of like how I describe 
her and yeah and then he just sort of shows up and he's like one of those guys that like lived like a heart like a gangsta life right but became mainstream but unlike say like snoop who you know he had the murder case right but pretty much everybody else says outside of that he was you know kind of there like ice t was living that life you know, yeah. in a way that was authentic i have to give him credit in that sense but also you kind of cringe at like knowing that like he's talking about it for real not you know playing yeah, he's, he's trying on life experiences mm-hmm. and, so uh, yeah and i would say you know getting to the album in some respects you know he's drawing on all those experiences and and putting them in the wraps on this album and this is would be a, a big example in the earlier days of rap of the gangster rap genre and also kind of the criminal, uh, you know, talking about crime and, and the crime life in the same way that, um, you know, KRS one did when we talk about boogie down productions. Right. And, um, well, that's that the vein. Well, that's the interesting thing. Cause I always think of ice T as being a West coast rapper. Cause he you came know, out of funny. LA. Yeah. It's funny but you this say is... that. Yeah. But a couple I, different things, and I'm going to let it go. He was born in Newark, New Jersey, and lived there until 14. Yeah. And this is very much sounds like an East Coast hip hop album. Yes. Like, full stop. Well, even on a song like Make It Funky, which is the third track, he's calling out, you know, New York boroughs, and and uh, it, it's, it's yep. very New York sounding. In, well, in and sampling ways. Boogie Down Productions, like The yep. Bridge is Over, and like it, the. the yeah, the DJ work here. So that really caught me off guard because I never list this album. I'm like, this is, I was thinking I was going to get a West Coast album. And this is like, a, this holds way more in common, like you said, with Boogie Down Productions, which KRS-One is in, who you mentioned. Yep. Or the sonic palette of, you know, uh, er, like even early uh, Run DMC, there's things because he's sampling rock all yes. over this album. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and kind of some of the delivery and and sound effects too are from the samples are are reminiscent of that. The other big one would be like Slick Rick too. That would be mm-hmm. kind of in the storytelling ability of his of his songs and and the explicitness on some of his songs. Yes, um, um, he's definitely uh, akin to well, that. Well, he's got a little bit of Public Enemy in him too. That he you know he's always done these social commentaries, but the thing. The thing that's always interesting to me about him is that, like, he's got a little bit of the Tupac thing where he'll write, like, a profound social commentary and then he'll write, like, a, like a super misogynistic, homophobic, right. you know, yeah. like, glorifying crime type. And it's like, you get both, right? You're like, yep. this is an interesting mix. Whereas somebody like Public Enemy, right, was, like, leaning fully into, like, the consciousness, right? Or, like, NWA, right, was leaning into that life, right? Mm-hmm. Like, here, like, Ice-T seems to be like, nah, man, like... There's a part of me that is going to speak truths, but also be aspirational and positive. But then there's going to be a part of me that just very casually, you know, says pimpin' ain't easy. <laughs> and like, not like in the way that other people say it. Like, you know, I get a lot of women. Like, no, like the game of pimpin' right. ain't easy. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Which, had had you heard this album before? I am much more familiar with Body Count era, Ice-T, which is like early 90s. And so I was a little bit prepared for the fact that this was going to have almost like at times like a metal or hard rock sound to it. Um, Mm. And it does. I, I feel like the difference between this and all the other rap that we've listened to is that this leans into the hard rock sound way. It's like a rap slash 
rock album in some ways. Uh, now, there's always been rock samples all over, you know, especially New York hip hop, right? Yeah. They're West Coast, not as much, but New, you know, New York famously, you know, you got Walk This Way and, you know, Rock Box and from Run DMC, mm -hmm. the Beastie Boys had plenty of rock beats, you know, it was just, it's a, it was a part of the beats that they sampled, right? Was, was hard rock, but this seems to almost have its sensibilities from hard rock. Now, you know, when he gets to body count, he's basically playing with, you know, right. a rock a metal band behind him, right? So he kind of leans all the way into it. But uh, one of the things that I found really interesting was some of that was because, you know, uh, Ice-T was kind of raised, you know, upper middle class in New Jersey, but then his mother and his father died. Mm. And that's when he ended up in LA. But even there, he ends up in like an upper middle class neighborhood in South LA, but through, you know, that era that we sometimes forget when they were actually trying to not, they were doing busing and different stuff to actually have racially mixed schools, right? As opposed mm -hmm. to like gentrified schools, kind of. He ends up going to like sort of like a more la di da middle school, and then he goes to like Crenshaw High hmm. in the seventies for, um, which is majority minority and obviously difference of uh, socioeconomic class. I, I also think it's interesting, like, and you see it in this album. For as much as he's talking explicitly, he avoids cursing. Oh, Did you notice that? Yes. Like he, I, he chooses all the time to not curse. Yeah. But he has which no means problem he had talking to have, about yeah. <laughs> sex. <laughs> yeah. Explicit sex and yeah. violence. Right. But right. he always, when he has the choice of cursing, and I don't know if that's, he's trying for radio friendliness or, and if you notice, there's really not a lot of cursing on East coast hip hop in this era. That's it's true. still, yeah. it's still a little bit playing it clean. Mm -hmm. uh, and even when I think of like East coast hip hop from, the 90s, I don't know if I processed them cursing as much as, like, the West. Maybe yeah. it's just my own mind. But, um, but yeah, I, I it, you know, Ice-T was a teetotaler his whole life, I thought was interesting. Hmm. No Good alcohol, night. no cigarettes, no drugs, like, famously. He basically identifies almost as being straight edge. Wow. Um, yeah. And so I thought that was interesting. But, yeah, he... After he graduated high school, he pretty much for about eight years, he, he went back and forth between the military and crime. <laughs> was, <laughs> and he comedy. basically, he unveiled a lot of it when he was aware that the Statue of Limitations had worn out. And he talked about like being a bank robber in Hawaii and um, all kinds of different stuff that he was doing. Like he wow. pimped out there and stuff. So, uh, but he kind of left it behind around 82 by his description to make it as a rapper and then kind of never looked back. It seems mm. like, yeah. Wow. So interesting dude. Mm -hmm. He's always uh, very outspoken on Twitter as well. He has some, fun Oh things, really? Especially against like politicians and, and um, I would imagine he leans the to the left based on the bio. I read yes, he, he, he there was something where he mentioned that he was going to say positive things about John McCain because he didn't want to get in the way of Barack Obama getting, uh, uh, elected. <laughs> so he figured he could lend his support by seeming like someone who was co-signing uh, uh, McCain. So I don't know if that was a, it sounded as much joke as anything else, but some of his takes seem to be what we would call left of the spectrum, I'd say. Yeah. Was that how his Twitter comes across or no? Oh yeah. He was always talking shit on about Trump and like, okay. And all sorts of, you know, insane things that politicians do. So yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So, um, yeah, and, and this is for those that may – the other thing people who may not know Ice-T very well may know is sort of the whole cop killer um, song. Right. Uh, yes. Controversy. But that's not until Body Count comes around. That's not till the early 90s. So this is several years ahead of that. Mm. Um, yeah. So we'll, we'll kind of leave that out of this conversation because let's go a little bit into the album itself, Josh. I know that you, you've often talked about the fact that um, you know, I was going to say hip hop, but then I think of the lineage that Ice-T comes from. Like he mentions hearing the Sugar Hill Gang and being influenced by Public Enemy and Rakim. And I want to call it rap because those guys are very outspoken, mm-hmm. especially in the modern era of saying there's hip hop and then there's rap. And what I do is I do rap. And even like Eminem has sort of leaned into that a little bit more. And so I think like Ice-T would probably identify as a rapper more than a hip-hop artist, right? I would think um, so. Yeah. yeah. So what did you... Th- I know that this is a genre that holds a special place in your heart. It was a mm-hmm. seminal genre for you growing up. Um, I listen to my fair share, but I feel like in some ways your spiritual connection is the strongest. What would you think of this one? Um, hadn't heard this album before, and I thought I thought it was okay. I... It does harken back to kind of the lineage of the the early 80s rap in some ways. It's uh, the rapping itself is, uh, you know, kind of that that basic structure, Um, although he does rap faster um, in some songs than others. I think the the beats and the sampling are kind of reminiscent of the, the early 80s rap as well or mid 80s rap. So he's not really transcending um, anything or or um, kind of reinventing the genre yet in the way that I would say Public Enemy or the right. Beastie Boys. Well, um, he's not but, leaning into his gangster side like he would in like original gangster, right? Yeah. Which comes later. Yeah, he's still in a crossroads. It feels like. Yep. Yeah, and it's it's like a it's like a really solid, I guess, template for what a lot of other rappers would do. I mean, I guess the main thing is that he is, you know, so um, goes deep on kind of uh, the criminal lifestyle and kind of money, cash and hose and, and the, uh, and sex, which he has a whole, it's all a gentleman sex. knows. Yes. Josh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so on that front, I think he is, he is at the forefront in terms of, uh, vividness and telling stories and uh just what you know i guess being true to his his self ultimately uh, himself and um so while i enjoyed it it did not transcend um some of the other rap albums that i liked more um i think it's uh but like you say you know you bring up a good point about hearkening to the or at least leaning into the heavy rock side of things i really kind of like the opening intro that he has i think that sets a different tone um in the first track and then um at the end bookending it with with uh squeeze the trigger and kind of like there's this like really awesome like bass beat on that track and then at the end he like dedicates um the album to the rhyme syndicate and kind of other people that have helped him um, with the album. So I thought that was interesting. 
Yeah, this um can before I go into my take, can I bring a couple things that we might have taken for granted that are fantastic <laughs> yeah, about the surrounding it. album? First of all, this cover is awesome. It's yeah. like Ice T in a ride with just one of his boys behind him. Yeah. A very attractive girl who I found out later was like his long term girlfriend. Right. Pre Coco, I think, was there. Um, Play, playing into the West Coast thing too with the mm-hmm. palm tree in the cars. Yep. That yep. that image. Mm-hmm. So definitely a great album cover. The the MC name Ice T is an underrated MC name. Yeah. And the album title Rhyme Pays is also pretty fantastic <laughs> as a as a title I'd like to yeah. mention. Plenty yeah. Um yeah, so that's there. I'd like to also throw a uh like the the folks around this which I think the beats on this album are what I'm going to talk about quite a bit. So mm-hmm. I kind of want to shout out the people that like are are on it both because I really like love the beat sounds and also like I love the names of the people on this. You've got DJ Evil E mm-hmm. is on this, DJ Aladdin, and the producer of the album is Africa Islam is the name of the producer. Oh, he which, shouts him out too, all yes. those people on the which, album. Yeah. Which ties into the, if you go back and listen to our paid in full Eric B and Rakim thing, I go into a long thing, which I don't know if it bored Josh or Matt or, or anything, but like about the connection of like, uh, you know, the five percenters and just right, sort of right. the influence of Nation of Islam, you know, it was all around public enemy. We talked about it there, but when you're naming yourself Africa Islam, you know what I mean? You're, um, <laughs> you're, you're, you're both back to Africa and you know what I mean? You're um, tied in into sort of that, you know, uh, black Muslim uh, thing as well. So I just chuckled when I saw that. I was like, it's like naming, I'll try to think of like what the, you know, equivalent would be, you know, like, I, I don't know. I'm not going to go down that route because I don't want to um, speak. But I, the standout for me, Ice-T as a rapper is fine. Right. I wouldn't say he's great, but I certainly don't think he's corny, you know, or st- he's got a decent flow. You know what I mean? He varies it. Mm-hmm. Um, he said he kind of, Patterned after Schooly D, which you could definitely see a little bit for those that might be familiar uh, with with what he sounds mm-hmm. like in early New York hip hop. Um, Seymour Stein, the label mate, said that he thought he sounded like Bob Dylan, which I found fascinating <laughs> in the bio. I, I I have to admit I did not hear that, I did but not um, but hey, Seymour Stein has sold a hell of a lot more hit records than I have, so maybe he's on to something. But uh. Yeah, but I didn't get that. I just wanted to add that in. But yeah, I, I think the standout for me is I love the beat selections on this. Like you mentioned, the beginning is great. The interludes are there. There's also, also some songs that start with one beat and then change to a different beat halfway mm. through, which is not something, and I'm talking like not just like have an interlude and then go back to the main beat, which is pretty common. I'm talking they have like a main beat and then it switches over to like a completely different main beat for the second part of the song. So a lot of these tracks run long too, yep. which I found interesting. Probably for my taste a little too long. I think it's kind of they're designed to be played at parties. Yes. Definitely. You know, what we used to talk about with disco, right? And you know, hip hop's origins came from disco to some degree. And there's still a little bit of vestige of that. I get the feeling Ice T you know, knew his way around the party, albeit staying completely sober at said party. But that's okay. You could party clean, you know. Um, but yeah, the, the beats are really what stands out to me. I love the selection of a mix of 
hard rock slash metal, but more hard rock, I'd like say. Black Sabbath. There's like Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, like mainstream hard rock, but it's there, as well as other New York hip hop of the time. He's sampling a lot of stuff from that era yes. in New York hip hop. Uh, there's a little bit of, you know, we mentioned, you know, uh, Boogie Down Productions is in there, but I heard a little bit of LL Cool J. I heard a lot of, little bit of shared samples uh, that the Rick Rubin acts, you know, the Beastie Boys and LL Cool mm-hmm. J. Run similar DMC stuff too, I think. Yep. Yeah. So it's throwback to sort of those lineage of those songs. So it's like you're sampling the sample used in a track. So, um, so from that end of things, that's what really pushed this from a thumbs in the middle album to a slight thumbs up for me mm-hmm. is the idea that I just, I was a big fan of the DJing and the beat selection on this. And there were times where I grooved to this, like I grooved to a hard rock album. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's unique because even when Run DMC or Beastie Boys were bringing it in, I still didn't think of those as, you know, hard rock. So maybe, maybe when you do like rock box where yeah. the, the, the beat stays throughout as the main beat. You could process it that way, but um, this seemed raw from from that end of things. And I, I really do like the meshing of hip hop and heavy rock. I think they, I think people are starting to figure out in this day and age because there's a lot of people that identify themselves as hip hop heads who've really also started to identify themselves as metal or hard rock fans too. Um, it's becoming a thing, and I always thought it's much easier to understand that than historically it was. And we have examples all throughout the 90s and OHOs of bands that, you know, combine those things, but still were kind of looked at as novelties. And I'm like, well, how how long is it a novelty when tons of people do it for 20 years? <laughs> and, and that it was a foundational thing for Run DMC and the Beastie Boys. And, you know, yeah. even even like mainstream rock like uh or or, or, excuse me not rock mainstream rap of the late 80s and early 90s like we talked about like funky cole medina having like jamie's crying and stuff like that i mean there's rock beats as much as disco beats or funk and soul beats all over the place especially in east coast hip-hop um like i said west draws a lot more lineage to funk and soul and covers like that but Mm -hmm. east coast hip-hop is always sort of had a little bit of an overlap with rock because the foundational folks sort of embraced that as part of the heritage. So, so yeah, I would say slight thumbs up for me uh, on this album. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to say slight thumbs up too. Um, Enjoyable in certain respects, some funny lyrics throughout. Mm -hmm. I like the idea of using 409 on your shoes to keep them clean. (laughs) Um, Yep. That was funny. So yeah, definitely check it out. Um, it may not blow your mind, but I think you, you would get something out of it. Yeah, and I listened to the the one with the bonus tracks on it just oh. out of curiosity. So the regular album's nine tracks. starts yep. at intro, rhyme, pays to squeeze the trigger. I should mention that rhyme, rhyme pays beat structure has War Pigs by Black Sabbath and then has uh, the Exorcist Tubular Bells, right, is the <laughs> yes. real name of the song, I think. Yeah. Mike Oldfield, I think, is the... Mm -hmm. Wow, I pulled that one out of my ass. But yeah, it's a mix of those two things, but it it really works for me. I I enjoyed it quite a bit. So, And there's James Brown on Make It Funky, as any track with Funky should have. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. Good stuff. Okay. And now, uh, if Matt was here, he'd say in a completely different direction. Um, John Lennon and Yoko Ono. 
the album released, I believe it was two weeks before, unfortunately, John Lennon was shot in New York City and passed away. Um, so many people think of this as a very sad album um, for understandable reasons. But uh, yeah, um, I'll give a little bit of a bio of where John Lennon and Yoko Ono are at because I think it's extremely important to have a little bit of context hmm. to understand this album. Um, because thematically, it really pops out. But before I get there, um, any initial thoughts, Josh, before I go into bio mode? Well, I, I can't remember if I said this during our discussion of one of the other two albums, solo albums, or maybe just in in general with the Beatles going solo. But, um, you know, I think there was this impression by me or maybe the public at large that that they were making, that Lennon and, and Ono were making, you know, like uh, challenging music or like experimental in some respects. And, and, and it may be different than what the Beatles were doing, but the, the talent and essence of, of uh, all of the Beatles in their solo efforts is there and their own kind of, uh, their contribution to the Beatles is highlighted in their solo work, if that makes sense. What made John Lennon yeah. um, special um, as a contributing member of the Beatles is highlighted and, and singled out in his solo work, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think John Lennon was act, was trying to be more challenging than the other ones. Yeah. And uh, I think at it was just in the solo career, Paul McCartney became the melody-driven guy that he always would have been. And George... Harrison kind of found his melodies quicker too. Mm -hmm. Lennon knew his way around melody too, but he consciously fought that a little bit. With that being said, I don't think this is the album where he leaned into that more. This is, I consider this to be about as straight ahead as Yoko Ono possibly can play it. Like, oh, absolutely. I, I don't think I've ever heard anything more straight ahead from her. Well, and it's it's all relative, but for her, this is mainstream pop and certainly john lennon is writing pop songs on this album too yes. um but we'll save a little bit of the takes i think you and i might see some of the same things but mm. i kind of want to give a little bit of an overview as to where we're at um so heading into this album john lennon had put his musical career on hold since 1975 his son sean gets born um i always feel for julian a little bit right like he <laughs> you know, he gets you know john lennon like finds his purpose in life right with you yep. know sean and dumps all his love into him and julian's kind of there there's a very very good single um by julian lennon much too late for goodbyes which was his first single in the 80s that's kind of about his relationship with um his dad and i just I find it to be a very profound but very sad song that's sort of like he, he loves his father, right, and, and yearns for it, but, like, you know, he's aware, right? And and I, I saw an interview one time with Sean Lennon where he says he really tries to – he tries to be aware because he's he's aware, right, that he got all the stuff poured into him. And, mm -hmm. you know, Julian kind of got left to fend for himself a little bit. But anyway, that's a – editorial comment from me feel free to do that but he during this point is sort of living a domestic life i think there's a lot of stories of doing research they always use the analogy of him like baking bread right is like the the john lennon's at home right like doing his <laughs> doing domestic things finding he's not doing primal scream anymore or turbulent yes. right like he's he's into there so this album is he's designed out a little bit 
Well, and this out, yes, he's found his peace, right? Like, yeah. like, like many men who I guess, you know, uh, full disclosure, Josh and I are both childless uh, individuals. Yes. And so I have heard enough times from guys who have kids that they feel like that's where they, I don't, I, I won't editorialize. A lot of guys seem to find what I consider to be things that are universal truths through having kids. And I respect that, right? Like, you know, the larger world, right? Like having responsibility, being selfless, you know, and it seems mm -hmm. like John Lennon was not immune, right? To this like drug that is child rearing, you know, with the person he loves. Um, so by this time though, um, John Lennon is starting to get the itch again, and Yoko is as well. Um, there's a couple different anecdotes that come up quite a bit. One is that in June 1980, John Lennon goes on a sailing trip from Rhode Island to Bermuda. They get into a storm, and he ends up having to take the wheel of the ship. <laughs> and I, I guess it has one of those things where it's like because he's able to survive, right? It like gives him confidence and gets a little bit more of like alpha John Lennon, I guess, back, you know, <laughs> he'd become a little bit beta-ized, you know, his father. And now he's just like, you know, the guy who was the ornery force of the Beatles, right? You know, I guess comes back a little bit. And um, also, of course, there's the fragility of life type deal, right? So that's a theme going into this that he's just sort of like, I feel inspired again. The other thing that comes about quite a bit, and you may have heard this story, Josh, but I have many times, is that... Yoko Ono becomes a fan of certain pop music in the late 70s um, oh, okay. and turns John Lennon onto it as well. And there's different examples of stuff that really speaks to them. You'll hear like, you know, the talking heads, you know, some of the, the kraut rock stuff appeals to them. But the song that always comes up is Rock Lobster by the B-52s mm. because Lennon and Yoko Ono feel like that's a song that shows that like people were paying attention to like what Yoko was doing, right? And like they feel like like there's a lane now, right? Where you can take like sort of Yoko stylings, right? And make it palatable for mass consumption. So that's a little bit of the thing. So they decide that they're gonna do a dual album. Uh, while they didn't say it, I think it's safe to say that it feels like this is a conversation between the two of them because it's a Lennon track followed by a Yoko track. Lennon yeah. track followed. And oftentimes... Yes, alternates. Um, mm -hmm. It alternates. And oftentimes, if you look at the titles of the songs, they yes. seem to play off of the other, like, mm -hmm. you know, and, and thematically, lyrically. Um, I feel like John Lennon is, is laying questions down and then Yoko is answering them in her own way. I wouldn't say directly a lot no. of times. <laughs> the titles the titles make you think it's going to be directive, right? Like I think one's like, you know, Yoko, I don't know. And then the other's like, well, then I'm leaving kind of, you know, or yes. like titles and stuff. But then you look at the lyrics and they're a little bit opaque, right? And so I don't know if like lyrically it totally does it, but you can see a conversation. Yeah, piece. it, it, it kind of like, dabbles or like touches on each other like a perfect example would be i'm losing you and i'm moving on those mm -hmm. two tracks they kind of sonically play into one another and sound similar they're like two sides of the same coin kind of yep and uh the other thing that comes up quite a bit in it is that john lennon had heard paul mccartney's single coming up in 1980 and had given <laughs> a compliment to Paul McCartney, which was rare in the 70s, mm -hmm. where he said it was a good piece of work. And he did say that um, McCartney has said, you know, it is coming from McCartney. So, you, 
who knows why well, I, I think it's probably true that Lennon had reached out to him and said that you know he enjoyed it and was looking forward to recording and certainly when you see the type of music he creates you can see that he might have been more in the McCartney-esque frame of mind I'd say yes recording say so. mm-hmm. yeah uh, um before we kind of get into what I think is a clear 50s and 60s influence on this album too <laughs> yes. let me give <laughs> which I don't want to take up too much air and I'll just I'm going to give a little bit more Josh I'm going to turn it over to you. Um, what happened is uh, Yoko Ono approaches Jack Douglas, who's a pretty famous producer. I think he's probably most known for producing um, a couple of the big Aerosmith albums of the 70s. Mm-hmm. And um, it did Patti Smith, uh, New York Dolls, and stuff like that. So, um, so they go there. They go to the Hit Factory. They begin to record. Um, and actually, they did so many tracks that they end up doing another album called Milk and Honey that's posthumous for John Lennon, which is sort of the other pieces of this album that are also sort of set up with a combo John Lennon-Yoko Ono piece. Um, Lennon also comes into this wanting uh, new musicians all around him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he asks Douglas to kind of put together different people who will serve as sort of session players. Um, and he actually brings in two members of Cheap Trick to be uh, musicians, which I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, Rick Nielsen, who's the probably the guy you think of with Cheap Trick, right? Like the hat, you know, the crazy clothes, right? He's the lead guitarist and the songwriter. And then Bun E. Carlos, um, who it's said like Bunny, right? Who's yeah. a drummer for Cheap Trick. They're musicians on this. Um, and they are, you know, they originally were playing on I'm Losing You and I'm Moving On, but then they actually don't end up on the album. They get replaced by studio musicians, but they do release the Cheap Trick versions on like an anthology collection for John Lennon. But um, there's all these different people who are recording. Uh, interestingly enough, like Lennon's uh famously his uh record contract expired in 1975 as well like he was rushing material right to get out of it Mm. um and then he was out and he was free and clear so they actually didn't have a record label at all when they did this and so they self-financed all of this um they recorded in secret so no one knew they were doing it and when they had gotten an album they felt uh comfortable with they just called their publicist and they just said we're coming back and then, of course, all the labels are like, we'd love to sign you, John Lennon, and, Yoko, and, and you too, Yoko Ono. And they end up signing with um, Geffen Records. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know what they attribute? The reason why Geffen won? Geffen was smart enough to, when he called, ask to speak to Yoko Ono first about her contribution mm. to the album because he said that he viewed it as a co-album and he wasn't going to release it as John Lennon featuring Yoko Ono. He was going to yeah. release it as a dual album. So, which it is, I'd like to say, by Absolutely. the way. Absolutely. Yeah. But um I, you know, that's that's a that's a good record guy, right? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? He's aware of, you know, what's going on. So, uh and then unfortunately, as I mentioned, this was released and very shortly afterwards, um John Lennon is uh murdered. It's uh, it's very early in the 1980s that this album is released. Um, right around uh, January twelfth, um, uh, excuse me, uh, excuse me, November seventeenth, nineteen eighty. I apologize, is when it was uh, released, and then uh, the first single was released on January twelfth, nineteen eighty one, shortly after John Lennon's death. So, 
that's a little bit. It was not well regarded at the time, but sort of like many things, it's been retconned to be very well regarded. I'll have my take on why that is, uh, but I've talked a hell of a lot. Josh, I want to hear your take on this one. Yeah, so my take is that this is a pretty good album. I mean, it's a testament to both of their uh, talent and kind of uh, what they're interested in, in, uh, you know, their unique styles of music um, are both on display here. They, like you said, uh, John Lennon is clearly hearkening back to, I keep saying hearkening back this episode, but they, he is, uh, you know, you're hearkening back to when you said it before, (laughs) indebted to the, uh, the fifties and sixties oldies. And I think he's intentionally trying to kind of create this classic, uh, sound, be it from doo-wop or even slight country and just kind of these like easily accessible pop sounding songs that maybe have some more complex themes to them um or or ideas and then you have the yoko ono side or you know contribution to this album I, i would say the other side of the coin to this album is that she's definitely more pushing the envelope in terms of uh being you know since this is such early you know late 70s early 80s when they're making it kind of that post-punk new wave type of sound that we discussed at length on the show and um it, it fits right in with those sounds and i found both the idea that the tracks alternate between the two of them and um just kind of hearing the getting the alternating styles of music each track was also kind of interesting and pleasing to hear Um, i also thought it was interesting that they don't really cross over you would think that they would they would you know sing on each other's songs or you know contribute uh, have more of like you know duets or some sort of contribution in that sense but it's really like evenly separated and split and it's a real um so that's interesting too you don't see that too often in terms of like essentially two separate artists <laughs> being on the yeah, same it's not album. like the beatles right where there right. were lennon or mccartney songs but they harmonized famously on both of them nope yeah. these are like this the john lennon song and this is a yoko ono song yep, yeah yep and they're completely their own identities and you just get two for one essentially on on an album and uh and they and they're each interested in their own thing clearly there's not like john lennon doing a post-punk song it's like not that's not the case or yoko and doing an oldies song that that's that does not happen on here so um but i i found it you know pleasing to listen to i found it um kind of not off-putting but it caught me off guard that that it was so um so um oldies based in in some ways it, it felt like me too it yeah. felt like what what um the early Beatles would have been doing, you know, in terms of their blues, their love of the blues and, and um, the early rock Elvis and kind of all the early rock stuff that they, that they listened to as boys. Um, And then just, and Yoko being (laughs) Yoko being Yoko, but also being like a a pretty good, you know, artist, I would say. And, and um, musically interesting songs 
things that definitely um, fit in with kind of all the other post-punk and new wave sounds that we heard. You know, she mm-hmm. referenced the B-52s and, um, and I can see that and it, it was just as enjoyable to listen to her songs um, than it would be some of those other artists. So yeah, it was, uh, it's like an interesting experiment, but also just really good pop music and, and, um, and rock music. Yeah. I, I was familiar with just like starting over. Right. And like, mm. I knew that had sort of a nostalgic fifties, sixties feel. Yeah. To it. I just figured it was like, that was the track where they did that, right? right? And it also, just like starting over, always reminds me a little bit of Instant Karma, too, for some reason. I don't know how to describe it, but I just mm-hmm. think they have some similarities for my ear. Um, yeah, I, I, so I look at this as, like, two different albums, right? Like, yeah. I, thematically, I think this is sort of, like, let's give you a view of our love and our relationship and our family, which, yep. and I'm going to kind of go into, like, a, you know, thought piece here in a second but i don't want to do it before we talk about the music first but that's it it's also very much like a i'm hitting middle age album Mm -hmm. for john lennon right where he's sort of writing it seems like he's writing just as he is right so there's not as much edge right the lyrics are at times uh, uh, more trite than you expect i mean there's still some gems in here um you know, in terms of he, he throws in, but for the most part, they're a little bit trite. I don't think lyrics are really Yoko's thing. That's I don't think that's really what she's going for, right? Like lyric. I think the lyrics, sort yeah, of, I don't like think that's many what she's artists. Interested in. <laughs> yeah, I think that's yeah. I think it's just like many artists, right? They're interested in the the totality of the piece or the music or the art, right? And the lyrics just happen to be another piece of it, not a primary piece. Um, but yeah, that's, and so it sounds like this is like John Lennon playing stuff that reminds him of childhood while being, it's almost nostalgia, mm-hmm. um, which John Lennon famously like hated when he was more um, tumultuous, shall we say, right? And it's the yeah. sort of like, now that I'm more centered, right? Like I can go back and you know, revisit the things that sort of sparked me at the beginning with the Beatles and my childhood and stuff like that. So you've got these John Lennon songs that are identifiable. And yeah, and it's also clear, Yoko's like, I found mainstream slash pop music, which appeals to me, mm-hmm. a la like New Wave or, you know, sort of the artier, um, you know, uh, world type music on there. And, you know, you it wouldn't be hard to figure to have Yoko listening to stuff like Public Image Limited and, right. you know, Throbbing Gristle. I, I'm sure there was that also passing through her filter, right, along with the stuff that's a little bit more danceable and mainstream. And I feel like yep. much like John kind of calmed down, I think Yoko also was a little bit less self-conscious about being a serious artist, right, or being taken seriously and kind of leaned a little bit more into let's make a little bit more, you know, accessible music that's you know complimentary along the way but i i like the difference of both of them i actually think the yoko album part of the album sounds way more like it could hack it in today's world than the Len- the lennon stuff sounds like you know i i love the beatles right but it sounds right. like you know the john lennon beatles sound whereas the yoko stuff stories like well some of this stuff could travel to the modern era that she's doing and yep. certainly traveled a little bit better into the 80s and 90s um with where it was going but i i it's funny, like I can't necessarily 
I don't like connect with this idea of like domestic bliss as a theme, but I don't need to connect with something to like it in the way that other people do. And and I've always thought like one of the reasons this album was so poorly regarded was that this was just for people that love the Beatles that were of a certain age. Right. They did not want John Lennon to not be John Lennon anymore. And like when he released an album that was appropriate for a 40 year old guy, like growing into it, you know, like they were like, it doesn't sound enough like the Beatles. And why the hell are you subjecting me to Yoko Ono who I don't <laughs> like? So instead of being like, she's an integral part of John Lennon's journey right and like yeah. you don't have to like it but like if you're still not getting that by 1980 like you're not getting your idol you know what i mean it's it's kind of like what you'd see later with like kirk cobain and courtney love right it's mm. like well why is she here it's like well she's integral to like who kirk cobain is so you're gonna have to like process that right because it's a, a piece of his art right and like i do think that you know when you read the the feedback so many of the people are like this album you know john lennon's being wasted you know by yoko and all they're writing about themselves it's like but if music's writing about what you know about right it's kind of like that's what you do right? right and this is where he's at right now and i think listening to it without having all of that subtext of having listened to the beatles and be around and see the evolution i don't carry as much of that baggage so i can kind Same. of like listen yeah. to the yoko yoko stuff like as the stuff right and not like you know yoko is a part of this narrative right that i you know don't like compared to the other stuff and um yeah we've had this talk yeah, go ahead, go ahead, i was sorry. gonna yeah. say that myth almost like mythical uh ability or story of like yoko like somehow breaking up the beatles and like you know that's not true and and um i don't know there's like unnecessary um harshness to towards her and like well, him, well, like we can her look at it like modern influencing lens. her in a yeah. negative him in a negative way or something well it's what rock was it's like yeah. rock was a misogynistic culture especially rock criticism right yeah. and like the, i mean that era was all i, I mean and that continues all the way through the 80s, the 90s, even the 00s, right? That you have these male, and, and you know, I know there's going to be some people that are going to be like, look at these guys flying the flag of, you know, modern. And I think I'm a pretty healthy balance of, you know what I mean? Like, I like some of the traditional stuff and I'm not for elements, you know, where yeah. traditional, but like, it's clear when you're reading this stuff, there's just a lot of hostile men towards women. They, they don't want them at the show. If yeah. they're there, they can be the groupies. Maybe, maybe if they have a great voice, they can sing as like a novelty act. You know what I mean? Or, or they can be in like black music, right? But yeah. like not in rock music, right? Like, you know what I mean? And the legacy of rock is all of these people, right? Like having to be defined by either who they're dating or like how the press compares them to male acts, right? Like, and, and leading up to this, right? Like, you know, whether it be Hart, right? You know what I mean? Or or Stevie Nicks and Fleetwood Mac or um, Blondie, right? Like all of them, you know, are, are attractive women. Don't get me wrong. But like they aren't primarily selling their sexuality in the front. You know what I mean? But yeah. they get made into these sexualized things by the men, right? Like it's just that's how, because that, that's how they want it 
right, to do it. And so you get somebody like Yoko, right, who's giving them none of this shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, that's com- true. <laughs> and, and not only, like, hostily challenging them, just sort of, like, not even acknowledging them, right? Like, kind of just existing outside of them, giving them nothing, right? Like, no anger, no intrigue. Just she offends their sensibilities to some degree, right? Mm-hmm. And I give John Lennon credit, and I feel like he was very aware of that, right? Like, that... And kind of almost, I think, admired her for that. And, you know, in the modern context, I think it's so much easier to understand Yoko Ono and, like, their relationship coming from 2023 than I guess maybe it was in the late 60s to 1980. And we have the benefit, I guess, of knowledge. But that's how I look at this album. It's just, like, you may not have to like it, but this idea that, like, Yoko Ono spoiled, you know, what John Lennon was like if you know anything about John John Lennon didn't want to become your nostalgia he fought against that intensely you know what I mean so this idea that she's ruining him from being the real John Lennon means that maybe you need to reevaluate your idol a little bit better right so Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and And so yeah go ahead I'm sorry I was gonna say it must have been you know you said uh at some point this album has been reappraised and probably the death of John Lennon has had some impact on, on how people thought of this album after. Well, of course there were, there were, there were reviews that were there that were overwhelmingly negative. Then of course, suddenly they magically got positive afterwards, (laughs) which they kind of did. But I think what, I think really why this album has been reimagined is because like, for the people that didn't like it, like the idea of Yoko being on it was going to always make it an album they hated, right? Mm. So now I think there might be still... And, and I didn't love all of this album, right? There were some yeah. things that didn't connect as much to me. Um, I thought some of the Lennon songs were really excellent and some of them not as much. Like I thought um, uh, a song like um, Just Like Starting Over and... Uh, I'm Losing You and Beautiful Boy. Like pretty much all the side one Lennon songs were really strong. Now, Woman, I know a lot of people love that song. It didn't do as much to me. And, you know, Dear Yoko, not as much, right, of the Lennon stuff. Mm -hmm. And some of the Yoko stuff hit more for me than the others. The the closer it was to New Wave, the more I tended to like the Yoko stuff. I'd also like to mention there's like a little bit of like an Asian feel sonically and not just yoko like her slight accent and stuff like that i'm talking like the music choices um have a little bit of like asian tinge to them as well when i say asian i'm talking like japanese yeah music sounds it's not overwhelming still overwhelmingly the sound is of like western new wave or synth or you know avant-garde type stuff but i did catch some things in there where she was putting in a little bit right of uh, nods to the culture as well um so yeah oh uh, we um, should also i also like to mention the second track kiss 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 and her thinly veiled uh um, nod to the, the female orgasm i would imagine well it sounds like she was having an <laughs> orgasm on the yes yeah thinly veiled that's yeah <laughs> thinly veiled in the way that the tombstone is a thinly yeah. veiled marker of death so yeah um yeah. Uh, there also was one of the Yoko Ono songs that sounded like exa- and I think she ended up getting sued by it uh, for it. It sounded is it Yes I'm an Angel I think that basically was exactly making Whoopi 
Like, I didn't know what the song was, but I'm like, this song sounds exactly like another song. I'm like, I couldn't figure it out. I'm like, all right, I'm going to cheat. And so I, I went, right, to research. And immediately they're like, she was sued by the writers of Make and Whoopi. I'm like, that's it. That's the song. So, yep. Yes. Um, it's not exactly the same. It's not a direct, but, like, there's so much overlap that um, – but it's like one of those things, like if you have overlap but not an exact rewrite, does it exist in the lexicon of, you know, different stuff like that? I didn't think it was so egregious, but I I will say, though, that I noticed that it sounded like something else. So, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. So, uh, any final thoughts on this one? What I would I be interested in doing, and this just popped in my head, is that mm-hmm. maybe just listening to the Yoko Ono tracks and like skipping to see how that coheres as like an album um, or like a piece as opposed yeah, to... Yeah, you, you get the idea that you know what the John Lennon album would sound like, right? Yeah. Because you kind of know what a John Lennon album sounds like. Yep. But yeah, it's a, that's a very good point, Josh. I didn't thought of that, but I'd also be interested in hearing the second part of this. Mm. The, the second album that came out of this. Um, if it's a similar type of theme or if they separated out a specific type of song from this album. Like, is it a different lyrical content? Is it, does it sound different? You know what I mean? Is it less influenced by, you know, new wave or fifties and sixties rock? You know, I'd be curious. So I might, while we have a little time, listen to that. Are you talking about, well, uh, remember I said that they recorded two, they were two whole albums worth of tracks on this one. Like this was the first piece they, they, they then took a second thing called milk and honey right oh, which was mm-hmm. yeah yeah this was after posthumous they released it it was um how it's described here is it was released in january 1984 three years after lennon's murder um it was the first posthumous release of lennon music and most of it was recorded during these se- in fact pretty much all of it was recorded during these sessions oh i yep. see what you're saying so yeah, it's completely There's also new. interestingly a song called Nobody Told Me, which was a song that Lennon had written and wanted to gift to Ringo Starr. Hmm. That is on this album as well. So I don't know if like Ringo himself sings it or if um if like John Lennon sang it but was planning on it looks like I'm looking at the thing, it looks like um it says Lennon. Like as the well, the writer. So I don't know if I don't know. I'd have to listen to it. I'd be curious. So there's also a stripped down version of this album that they redid. Mm. Um, I'm seeing uh, that was done. I think Yoko did it, and so I guess it's like a mix, a stripped down mix, apparently of all the songs. That whole album's on Amazon Music as well. Okay, and I guess part of why it took so long for it to come out was that. Uh, Douglas and uh, Yoko Ono, I guess, had a falling out a little bit Hmm. um, about royalties. Um, And so it took a long time for them to agree on stuff, he and Jack Douglas. So, yep. So, yeah, I would say uh, uh, pretty comfortable thumbs up for me on this one. Uh, Do I like it as much as the two pure Lennon solo albums? I don't know if I do. But uh, I like Plastic Ono Band a whole lot. Um, and I liked a fair amount of Imagine as well. I This one's a little bit more breezy and easy to get into, but I don't know if I it has the replayability for me of those two albums. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you. I, I remember liking Plastic Ono Band a lot and being surprised by that, and 
in a good way. And um, but this is this is still quality. You know, it's testament to his both of their abilities as artists to to uh, make good records. There you go. And that takes us to our last album of the day, George Clinton, Computer Games. George Clinton, ahead of his time or very ahead of his time? <laughs> right. Josh, what would you say? Was he from the future? <laughs> or is he... <laughs> I, I think George Clinton has always sort of existed in his own space that yeah. does not adhere to time or traditional uh, <laughs> physics. Uh, right. So, yeah, which this album, I think... Continuum. Yeah, I think this album, to some degree, uh, reflects that a little bit. But mm-hmm. um, before we get into... I, I mean, I'm not going to do too much bio on this, because pretty much this is like George Clinton decides to do a solo album, right? Yep. That's, that's the theme of this. And I think most people know that before this, George Clinton was in Parliament Funkadelic um, as one of the main engines of that group. Um, and this is where he goes solo and brings in various members from from those groups but also other musicians along the way so that's kind of the the lead up to this um i will say it doesn't really yeah. sound like a solo album it's not like just george clinton singing it's like a million he seems singing. to be a very collaborative human <laughs> yes. being you know i don't yeah. i don't know if george clinton exists outside of the idea of collaboration so right. and and the cost right and i i like we said even his way of looking at things like when all the people were sampling him where he's like have at it you know, music is love, kind of. You yep. know what I mean? Like, if you're gonna if you're gonna take it, who am I to stand in the way, kind of? So, that you know, kind of free love of music, right? So, mm-hmm. um, let's just go into takes, I guess. Just I'm not gonna do much of a bio right here. What'd you think of this one? I think it certainly is an extension of of the Parliament and the Funkadelic albums we listened to. The most recognizable track on here would be Atomic Dog, which um, Snoop Dogg sampled um, on his album later. Uh, it is this album is so um, so uniquely and like uh, you know just so unusual and so unique in in many ways. It's it's a really funky album. There is um, not only a lot of sampling going on um from from previous tracks not from previous tracks from previous artists but also in kind of like a, like a sound effect and like visual uh, sound effect or like a you know sound cue type of um use of sound is, is very interesting there, in this <laughs> there are so many people credited as personnel on this there's yeah. like the playing personnel and then there's an area just called technical so yeah, yeah. there it, it seems like a very technically complex album um but at the same time it's it's so listenable each track is incredibly i would say incredibly different from the previous track um there is uh kind of straight ahead funk you kind of start off with that but then you like almost go into in some ways this is this is such like a psychedelic album in terms of it's like sound and in themes and just techno <laughs> is another genre that showed up on this i thought yeah i guess there would be elements of electronic music as well it's a very well, especially light- like what i think of as techno you know, like the techno sound that would come in like the '90s. Yeah, I don't know. So there is, um, it's a it's a very layered sounding album. You know, you have what seems like 
50 different instruments going on at once at times you know you have a you kind of have the foundation of funk on here with a lot of horns and like really good bass and like george clinton sounding with like a chorus of um uh, harmonizers and other people like chiming in with their voices and but then you kind of like drift into like weird like the third track pot pot sharing tots it's like a kid song in some ways in terms of like melody but it's it's like a really weird like truck drug induced yes like little kids like it's like a drug song for kids yeah yeah drug song for kids it's a good way to put it um and then you go into computer games which has like strangely like a vampire theme to it but also like like early 80s like beeps and boops like computer sounds in it and and it's not really like computer games in terms of uh video games it's like computer games in terms of like i don't know sentient computers playing games with each other mind games or something it's so it's so strange Um, yes you wonder what's going on in his mind sometimes (laughs) yep it's uh you know i'm probably making it sound off-putting in some ways but this album is like really interesting and really fun to listen to and it has has a foundation of like making you want to move and like nod your head and like and tap your feet and i think that's when it gets down to it that's kind of what i was um, drawn to there's these you know it goes on to atomic dog which um, has a recognizable sound but is very funky as well and then the final two tracks free alterations and one fun at a time they still have this underlying kind of like rhythm and beat to them that i found uh, really drew me into the songs despite their weirdness I, I i can't this album kind of like put me in a trance in some ways i can't like explain it it's like <laughs> really yeah like, I, I know what you're saying though yeah, yeah it's like really listenable but it's like really weird so that's it's it gets a thumbs up for me it's I, I can't wait to see what you think or hear what you think of it. Um, I hope Matt listens to it at some point. It's just kind of George Clinton has always been a unique artist and that that's, there's no, uh, that's still the case here as well. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed this album. I think because it's such a bizarre amalgamation of it's one of those albums that even the stuff I didn't love, I liked because it, was interesting. Mm-hmm. There's nothing uninteresting on this album. And right. you mentioned Atomic Dog, which of course is by far the most well-known song on this. Then you've got a track two. That's all the way down at track five, right? Right. At track two, you have that combo of, uh, what is it? I know Loopzilla <laughs> is the second part, but Man's Best, Man's Friend. Best Friend, right, is the second part of it. Which is themed. <laughs> yes, it's yeah. It's where that, you know, the dog comes from. Yeah. Like, you know, Atomic Dog has that, but that sort of that synthy sound that you think of in like West Coast hip hop, right, is in there. And 1251 is the length yes. of that, which normally would be death for me. But, uh, it just it felt like I was at like George Clinton's house yeah, for that song like at a party and, or something, and like George, you don't like catching vibes right from George Clinton on this album. You don't like you don't know if he's like shaman or <laughs> you know yeah. drug drug or like uh, good time funk. You know what I mean? Almost like what you would imagine like Rastafarian or something, or if it, like. 
you don't I don't know what the you don't get the idea of like what George Clinton is on this because I I feel like this is a to some degree all parliament and funkadelic is a little bit of an insight into George Clinton's psyche and sensibilities mm-hmm. and um you know all of the members of uh parliament like at the end are on this even though it's a solo album like you've got like yeah. Bootsy Collins is on this Dennis Chambers the drummer is on this like pretty much all the people that were in Parliament Funkadelic at the end of um, Eddie Hazel, right? Like, they're all on this album. And so it sounds, yeah, like a continuation of that. As Josh did a great job, it's like Parliament Funkadelic mixed with electronic and techno music. Uh, Some of them share... When we say electronic, it's not electronic like a lot of the stuff we covered in the '80s either. It's not, it's not right. sharing a lot in common with like New Order, Depeche Mode, or stuff like that. This is, I guess, has some sensibilities with the the technology, computer bloops and bleeps of like a Kraftwerk type yeah. of feel, but it doesn't in any way feel like a Kraftwerk album either because there's no metronomic, you know, the motoric beat here. Like, mm-hmm. I guess the closest you get is bass lines, but those bass lines run and jump and gallop and all, all the different things in it, like every funk album um, in this. And yet, I think that's why I like this so much, as you mentioned, Josh, is because it keeps you on your toes. You you're hearing a children's song with adult content and then you're listening to a a 12 minute and 51 second thing that sort of feels like you're at a house party and then you're being driven to like almost like a drone in a different album um computer games uh, i was trying to pay attention to the lyrics to see (laughs) what type of insights he was making right i thought like maybe it was going to be one of those things about like a commentary of the modern world or something like that but no not really <laughs> it's like right. I, but that's as close as they get to like it, it's it's in some ways it has the sensibilities i i mentioned it before it feels like what Kraftwerk was going for with like computer world and stuff it's mm-hmm. sort of a commentary on where music is going but george clinton always sort of strikes me as a guy who kind of takes life where it comes and you know, embraces the today kind of. And I feel like that was just him saying like, computers are here now. George Clinton's going to talk about computers now, (laughs) you know, as opposed to like computers are taking over the world. It's not, it's more just like, oh, there's these computers and you can do things with them. Look at some of the things. Here's what computers sound like, computer games, you know? And, Mm -hmm. um, and I just also like the other thing that always cracks me up about, you know, Parliament Funkadelic and, like I said, George Clinton here, is you can never tell what a song's going to sound like from the title. Like, Free Alterations. Yeah. You have no idea what Free Alterations is going to sound or Pot Sharing Tots, right? You're like... Right. Now, Pot Sharing Tots has a childlike quality to it, so then you're like, oh, that's the Tots part of it. Right. Um, and so it's like, okay, so I guess this is, like, what you would do if you give... Like, all I could think of is, is this what it is, like, if you give kids pot? Like, this is... <laughs> that's what i'm saying that's what it is isn't it because we talked it's like an adult song for kids right computer games is like you know here's the world with computer atomic dog is a super funky song but you're like what's an atomic dog it's like well an atomic dog is an atomic dog oh got it okay so it's an atomic dog you know (laughs) like that's what it is is what this sounds like is what an atomic dog is you know like a futuristic dog and then you know get dressed is sort of like uh, i i think more for those that might be more familiar with Funkadelic Parliament than this, probably the most like, I guess, 
mm-hmm. what you would would you say like it's yeah i yeah, mean but I, even I, that I has that... bleeps and bloops in it you know so it's yeah i guess that is the most tra- quote-unquote traditional sounding funk song kind of like yeah but with like computer sounds in it yeah like it's it's a part of the fucking song with like computer bloops in it yeah i still don't know free alterations is not about alterations of clothing i still don't know Mm -hmm. what like (laughs) what it is what we're altering but it it's real like you know it's got like elton john vibes at times i feel like (laughs) it's a real drug like induced kind of like funk trip this this album it's it's really you know one of a kind in a lot of ways i mean george clinton is like a mad scientist really that's kind of Mm -hmm. like what i view him as and he's also a really really good selector of bandmates around him yeah (laughs) he surrounds himself with really talented it's almost like it's he's like a a leader of a jazz band back in the Mm. day like you know where coltrane or uh, Duke Ellington or Miles Davis, they compile, uh, you know, Charles Mingus, they compile these bands, right? Uh, uh, players, not bands, but players around them, right? To yep. kind of give a feel. And I feel like to some degree, George Clinton is like the modern, you know, modern as much as 70s and 80s is modern in these days yep. version of that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's um, the production quality is very high. Um, everything sounds great. It's just going to, it's a journey. That's all a, a great um, psychedelic drug filled journey. <laughs> I also love the last track, One Fun at a Time. It's sort of like a disco vibe. Disco funk would be how mm-hmm. I'd describe that sound. It's got like a super cool groove um, yeah. and rhythm section in it. So hang in for that one because you'll enjoy it. That actually might be my, that or, I mean, Atomic Dogs is sort of undeniable, but One Fun at a Time might be my favorite song mm. on the album. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, this one gets a thumbs up for me. Thumbs up for me too. I, in fact, I think this is my album pick of the week of these four in terms of just uh, experience mm. and lis- listening, uh, quality of listening <laughs> experience. I will have to think about that. There's yeah. a couple I liked. I you um, you wouldn't have to convince me real hard that this might be mine either. But I liked some of the other ones too. Yeah, I like the variety of albums this week. I think we did a pretty good job of picking for albums that were eminently listenable but also different yep agreed Mm -hmm. with pop sensibilities is the one thing that all four albums shared this week for sure Mm -hmm. and uh we'll be coming back in the very near future now what albums we're going to be covering i think josh and i are going to do it now instead of bumpering stuff i think we're just going to go on the fly with different stuff so yeah so you know we'll talk about it after the show but um we're, you know, we're going to keep going um, at the end of July here and into early August. As I said before, Matt's taking a little bit of a break. Nothing is wrong. He just wanted to take a little bit of a break. As he mentioned, we've been doing it for three years straight. So he just felt like he needed to recharge the batteries a little bit. Um, you know, bake some bread yeah. with his Yoko. To quote, uh, <laughs> to quote George Clinton. Don't touch that radio. Don't touch nope. that knob. We're still here. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, but yeah, Josh and I want to keep the music flowing. So um, we'll talk a little bit. We'll come up with another fun show. Uh, who knows? It may be more albums from the 80s. It may be albums from other decades. Um, just tune in next week so you can listen. So for Josh, this is John. Thanks so much for listening. Coming to Stacks can be found on 13 different platforms. Viewer feedback can be sent to combingthestacks at gmail.com. 
You can follow us on Twitter at CombingThe and on YouTube by searching for Combing the Stacks and throwing us a follow.